The Bible from 30,000 feet, soaring through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Well, a very warm welcome to each and every one of you here this evening. Uh, my name is Neil Ortiz. I serve as one of a number of assistant pastors here on Pastor Skip's staff. Your lead pilot, Pastor Skip Heitzig, is not here tonight. So I know for some of you that's a disappointment. It's actually a disappointment for me. I love hearing the man. In fact, for those of us that fill in for him at times, we can only imagine that for you all, it feels as if you bought a ticket and went to Gillette Stadium to go see Tom Brady, the GOAT, play, and in his place, you get the third stringer. But we, and I certainly do, consider our pastor and teacher, Skip Heitzig, uh, the GOAT, or we might even at least say the GOOT the greatest of our time when it comes to teaching the scripture. Pastor Skip is probably getting ready to go to the airport and board a plane in Saudi Arabia as he and a delegation from here in the United States for the second time has had the opportunity to meet with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And I like telling Pastor Skip how proud we are of him because scripture tells us that when a man is faithful in his work, he shall not go unknown, but that he'll actually speak to kings and to princes. And so our senior pastor is that kind of man. We're really grateful for him. Well, I have an interesting opportunity to be with you on what is a very solemn day of remembrance, as was illustrated by the video, being that we are now... 18 years removed from 9-11. Before we begin, would you please do me the honor of joining me in a word of silence to honor those first responders and victims of the events of that day? Thank you. So I ask that as we spend the evening tonight in God's Word, that we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where we're going to look at verses 3 through 6. And as you find your place in 2 Corinthians 10, I also ask that you put a marker at Ephesians chapter 6, because later on we're going to spend some time looking at that chapter as well. As we consider the events of 9-11, I'm going to ask that we consider that false ideologies, lies, are what spawned the attacks of September 11th, 2001. Authors Daniel Benjamin and Stephen Simon in their book titled The Age of Sacred Terror, argue that 9-11 terrorist attacks are purely religious. They write that these attacks are seen as a sacrament intended to restore to the universe a moral order 
that had been corrupted by the enemies of Islam. It is neither political or strategic, but rather an act of redemption meant to humiliate and slaughter those who defied the hegemony of God. That word hegemony refers to what they were saying the Muslims see as the preeminence of God's leadership, his hegemony. But for those who know the truth of Scripture, they know that the ideology of the terrorists, just described by authors Benjamin and Simon, is false. This ideology is based on lies. Consider further that false ideologies, not terrorism or even the terrorists themselves, are the real adversaries that we face, not only physically, but even spiritually. You see, in the video we just watched, Pastor Skip mentioned that God loves even the terrorist. And we need to take a big step back and consider that the people who are acting upon false ideologies are so often themselves simply captors of those lies. I want us to look at it this way. If the ideology can be changed to the truth, then the threat is neutralized. We see Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul the Apostle because of his belief in what was to him a new ideology of life in Christ. As a glaring example from history and from our Bibles, that if the ideology can be changed to the truth, the threat is neutralized. In fact, Paul wrote about this in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, in fact, we might even replace that word persecutor with the word terrorist. Because those of you that know your Bible know that Saul of Tarsus was a terrorist to the first century church. So he says yet again, though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a terrorist, and an insolent man, but, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Friend, there are two camps in this world. The camp of God's truth in the camp of everything else that differs from God's truth. And the way God illustrates this in Scripture is found in Romans chapter 3, the middle part of verse 4, where we read, Let God be true and every man a liar. That is, every man or woman, when what they espouse differs from the truth of God, they are to be declared as telling a lie. So where do all these false ideologies come from? Where does everything false originate? Now, Jesus gives us the exact origin of falsehood and lies in a discourse that's recorded in John chapter 8 that he had with some of the preeminent religious leaders 
of his day. We find in John chapter 8 that Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. The Pharisees who themselves were captive by lies, but who also were propagating those lies. And to the Pharisees, Jesus says these words, beginning in verse 44, You are of your father, the devil. In the desires of your father, you want to do. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he, the devil, speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he, and here's the answer, is a liar and the father of it. And Jesus continues telling the Pharisees, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. He asks them, which of you convicts me of sin? Of wrongdoing. And he concludes by saying, And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And he answers the question, asking it almost rhetorically as he's dialoguing with them, saying, He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. What he's telling the Pharisees is that they remain prisoners of their own deception, prisoners of sin, blind to their own condition of unbelief, unable to apprehend the truth. Now, when Satan attacks humanity, his primary weapon of choice is falsehoods and lies. This is demonstrated and recorded for us all the way back, the beginning of recorded human history, where in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we read these words. Now the serpent, referring to Satan, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And this serpent says to the woman, Has God indeed said... He's bringing seeds of doubt into her mind as to what she can actually believe about what God had already declared to her in the form of instruction and avoiding the fruit of a certain tree. Has God indeed said? Fast forward a couple of thousand years where we find Satan himself Tempting Jesus in the wilderness after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And how does he tempt Jesus? By perverting and distorting the truth of Scripture with the objective of getting Jesus to submit to him, to be obedient to him, therefore placing Jesus in captivity to him. Why? Because Satan knows that as the mind of man goes, so goes the heart. And as the heart goes, so goes the body into sin and into death. 
This is illustrated in Scripture where in Proverbs chapter 23, the first part of verse 7, we read, For as a man thinks in his heart, who can finish it? So is he. Or, as Forrest Gump said, stupid is as stupid does. But beautifully, the converse is true. As righteous is, righteous does. So here's how it works. It's described for us in the book of James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where we can now understand how it is we fall into sin, how we become captives to sin. James writes that each one of us is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see, at some point, crossing the path of a man or a woman, older or younger, there's something alluring. And if that thing is not godly or of God, and our response is to want it, think of Eve with the fruit, then we have the beginning of the problem. And the verse goes on to explain, then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. All of us are vulnerable to this process. But as we find out tonight, our defense is the truth. Now, broadly, Satan is still to this day assailing the people and purposes of God with lies and false ideologies. But for a more narrow focus for our time this evening... We want to consider that a primary target of the enemy from the beginning has been the family. You see, according to the Bible, God himself ordained the family as the basic building block of all human society because God deemed from the beginning that it was not good that man should be alone. So he beautifully and mercifully and graciously made a companion for man. He brought that man a perfect wife. And that man and wife eventually produced children, and then we have the first family. As we consider the first family, the beginning of human history, I want us to consider that Satan aimed his first sin directly at the heart of the first marriage, bringing division between husband and wife. A little bit later on, we find that the first murder in all of human history occurred within this first family with a son murdering his brother. Fast forward again a few thousand years where we see Satan targeting a young married couple by the name of Joseph and Mary, requiring them to have to flee for her to give birth in obscurity, in a shepherd's field, in a manger, 
and then even after the birth, flee yet again to Egypt in order to avoid the murder of their infant son, Jesus. And they had to remain there until he was old enough that they might all return to his family's hometown of Nazareth. And now there's us, you. You and your family are now in Satan's sights. Why? Because Satan knows that if you remove the cornerstone of all godly societies, which is a godly family, then that society is going to erode from the inside out. The sooner he can get to the source, the more successful he will be at averting God's kingdom. This is because he knows the truth that's illustrated by an unknown source who said, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, then it doesn't work at all. Therefore, don't export it. If he can neutralize, that is, the enemy, if the enemy can neutralize the effectiveness of a Christian within their very home, the chances of them being effective to advance God's kingdom outside of the home are much greater. In fact, the enemy can have great success by bringing ungodliness, lies, falsehood, deception into a home because then that family themselves are not advancing the kingdom of God. It was Pope John Paul II who, in 1986, addressing a crowd in Perth, Australia, who said these very profound words. As the family goes, so goes the nation, and so goes the whole world in which we live. So tonight, we set our sights on securing the family's cockpit, the home, in a message titled, Secure the Cockpit, Piloting Your Family Amid threats. You see, in all four planes used in the 9-11 attacks, the cockpit of each plane was breached and control of the planes was relinquished. And we all know what disaster ensued. So I want us to look at it this way. The controls of the cockpit instruments on that fateful day, were taken over. They were altered. They were corrupted with malevolent data. That is, evil intent, resulting in death and destruction. Now, any plane without appropriate and right data or facts, information, will fly off course. And the same exact thing happens when a Christian home is hijacked by the enemy with lies and deceit. The truth is corrupted, resulting in a loss of godly control of the family, and the family jets off course, losing their way, heading toward destruction. And at this point, some of us might say, goodness, that sounds pretty intense. 
<laughs> I don't remember signing up for that when I responded to an altar call. I mean, I just wanted to be forgiven of my sins. Is that asking too much? You might be wondering, how did we get into this mess? How do we find ourselves in the middle of this celestial conflict? Answer, all of us were born into it. You see, all of us are not just in the war zone. We don't just find ourselves amidst opposing sides exchanging fire. We're not just in the midst of the war zone. We're actually fighters in the war. Even worse, initially from the start, all of us, self-included, were fighting against God himself. Why? Because all of us were born with a sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. As most of us have been learning from our weekend series, Heart and Soul, through the book of Romans, we've learned these truths, the first of which is found in chapter 5, verse 12, which says, Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. Every one of us by birth is naturally separated from God, at odds with God, actually hostile toward God. The psalmist put it this way in chapter 7, verse 11, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Going back to the truths of Romans in chapter 8, verse 7, we read, Because the carnal mind, that is the naturally separated from birth mind that all of us have, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Another word for enmity is animosity. There's a hatred, a rebellion against God. For of this carnal mind, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. How are we to look at this? We're to look at ourselves before coming to forgiveness in Jesus Christ as having a carnal mind that is held captive in a fortress holding us imprisoned to our sinful natures. Pastor Skip puts it this way, quote, an unbeliever may hear that and say, oh, wait, no, I have nothing against God. But he says, that's not the point. God has something against you. You're at enmity with him. Not good news. That would not be good news if that was the end of the story. But friend, that is not the end of the story because forgiveness flips the script. That is Good news. That is the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The saving prayer of a sinner is a declaration of war against the devil. And someone might say, the devil? Really? You expect me to believe that there's a devil and that this devil is an adversary of mine? Well, if that be any of our attitudes... I quote the character of 
Roger Kent in 1995's movie, The Usual Suspects, where you have one of the most epic lines in all of cinematic history where he says, the greatest trick of the devil, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. If that's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, convincing the world that he didn't exist, perhaps his second greatest trick is to convince the world that the war he wages against God and his people doesn't exist either. If any of us are under the delusion that we're not in the midst of an eternal war between good and evil, God and Satan, friend, that may just very well be a revelation of the sorry state of an apathetic heart. And as long as we be victims of an apathetic, ignorant heart, we're going to lose these battles. Friend, as soon as we're redeemed in Christ, we become at war with the devil. You see, you've defected. You now have a, a new enemy, and he's not happy. The great C.S. Lewis put it this way. The enemy will not see you vanish into God's company without an effort to reclaim you. Therefore, man, the war is on. You have to be aware that Satan's got your number, Christian. You're on his radar. You're in his sights. And of this pervasive, chronic combat condition that we as Christians are in, Paul David Tripp says this, spiritual warfare makes us think of demon possession or perhaps horrific demonstrations of satanic control and dramatic exorcisms. But Scripture presents spiritual warfare not as the violent, bizarre end of the Christian life, but rather as simply what the Christian life is every day. You see, in this war for all of us, who called Jesus our Lord and Savior, there is no leave. There are no deferments. There is never a ceasefire on this side of heaven. Canadian author L.E. Maxwell described it this way. He says, Our tent while on this earth is pitched not in paradise, but on a field of battle. And the great A.W. Tozier rightly described this world for the Christian as a battleground, not a playground. This truth is illustrated to us in the command found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter declares, Be sober, Christian. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, devour. I guarantee you that if at some point a lion started to parade itself through this sanctuary, all eyes would be on that lion 
Assuming all the doors were locked, we're just thinking, I need to avoid that. That's how we need to walk through this earth. Not paranoid, but vigilant, circumspectly, as eyes all around on all four sides, aware that we have an enemy who has us in his sights. But again, friend, as believers, we benefit from great news. And part of this great news is that as soon as we defected to Christ's lordship by his forgiveness, we've then received all the resources of God available to defend us against threats and to win battles on this side of heaven. Christian, never forget that you've defected to the winning side. Personally, we just have to hold the lead of Christ in our lives until the end. You're not fighting for victory, Christian. You're fighting from victory. Never forget that. And perhaps after the longest sermon introduction in recorded human history, we now finally get to our passage. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. You thought I charted way off course, didn't you? <laughs> this guy went all the way to Canada just to get to Dallas from Albuquerque. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. We read, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Friends, that verse pumps me up. My wife and I are different in a number of ways. And when I'm watching a good football game or a good MMA match, and I see two people or opposing teams who willfully got on that field or in that ring, nobody forced them, and they go at it to compete, and there's some great competition that we're able to watch, I love demonstrations of power and of grace and of victory. This is one such declaration spiritually. I love this because it shows God as a victor and his people as victorious. So let's consider, as our goal is to secure the cockpit, who are we securing the cockpit from? We've learned already that we have, as Christians, a new adversary, the devil, but... Does that mean now we wage battle against Satan directly? No. Never directly. Friend, we do not fight against demons, including Satan. Why? Because Christians addressing or warring against demons, including Satan, is 100% absolutely foreign to Scripture. You are not going to find it. You see, we're not called ever to convert demons. 
not even Satan, but rather sinners held captive in lies and sin. We're called to convert demons as we engage, I'm sorry, we're called not to convert demons, but sinners as we engage the sinner by sharing the truth with them that they might be freed by that truth. And we also wage war against the enemy when we encourage one another in the truth, especially if any of us as believers are dabbling with or being tempted by lies and falsehood that could lead us also in to sin. You see, according to the passage we read, we we oppose what are called strongholds, false ideologies, lies, not demons. Furthermore, we're also not to fight against the peddlers of lies, nor those held captive by the lies, and even those that propagate the lies. But we are to defend against the lies themselves. You see, in this way, when we're engaging with somebody that's ungodly, even when they've sinned against us, we're always to have the heart and mind of Christ that he had when he was placed upon the cross and he looked at the very men who stapled his body to those beams. And what was it that he prayed to his father? Father, forgive them. They don't know fully what they just did. Remember what Paul said. He obtained mercy because he originally did it in ignorant unbelief. We have to have compassion upon people who are held captive by lies and falsehood, remaining captive by their sin. Now, God dealt with me on this very personally recently. You see, as a Christian, but also as a pastor on this staff, and for those of you who don't know, we have 16 pastors on staff, all of which are full-time. In fact, the ministry quite often is way over 40 hours a week. What that means is we have a lot of opportunity to serve the Lord. You know what that also means? Just like a professional athlete, we also have opportunities to fumble sometimes. And God dealt with me on this very personally, just even as I was preparing for this evening. You see, it was not long ago, just a few days, that I engaged in an exchange with an unbelieving man here on the church campus. In fact, it was literally right in front of me, (laughs) right here. And I failed to remember that he's held captive by lies and falsehood. And I took it personally. And I was aggressive with him in a way. We didn't get physical and I didn't use profanity, but I know in my spirit, I should have handled it better. Friend, in this way, it's never personal. Even when it feels personal. If that man is here, he knows who he is. Publicly, I extend an apology, and I do ask.
I ask for your forgiveness. Why is this so important? Because though it's war and though it's combat, we fight against not a who, but rather a what. We're up against strongholds, the passage reads, arguments, high things or thoughts. You see, to the recipient of this letter to the Corinthians, they would understand this imagery very vividly because Corinth, like all major Greek cities, had what was called a necropolis. Acropolis comes from two words, acro meaning high or elevated and polis meaning city. Within each city, there was an acropolis, this higher, elevated, fortified city, where if the city was attacked, the residents could rush to the Acropolis in order to be safe. We might even say in modern day, it's like a panic room in a home, where the one who designed the panic room does so to make it invulnerable to attack or intrusion. And so these strongholds are ideological fortresses, built of lies and falsehoods that Satan has people captive in. But when we declare the truth, we experience some of the other language of the passage in 2 Corinthians. Pulling down, casting down. Every high thing is laid down. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God is now brought low and humbled. That word strongholds is the Greek word okumura. And it means ideologies, further defined as a body of doctrine or myth or belief that guides an individual or a social movement or an institution or a class or a large group of people, whatever it might be. And the implication of these specific strongholds is that they differ from the truth. They're lies. These are falsehoods attempting to usurp, to overcome, to take over the place that the God of truth exclusively occupies over all of his creation. This word was also used in ancient extra-biblical Greek to refer to a prison. Think of a group of people holed up in this fortress all the way Throughout their entire life, it's as if they're a prisoner in this fortress. And furthermore, this word was also used at times to refer to a tomb because so many people had to live their entire life all the way unto death, remaining in such fortresses. Of this effect, John MacArthur says, quote, Doomed souls are inside their fortresses of ideas, which become their prisons and eventually their tombs. Unless, that is, they are delivered from them by belief in the truth. So these strongholds of false ideologies and of lies are what we have to secure our family cockpit, our home, from. But how do we do that? 
Well, the most secure passenger planes have reinforced and bulletproof cockpit doors. And friend, our bulletproof defense is the truth of Scripture. You see, the truth is what produces salvation, freedom, as well as sanctification, holiness, Christ-likeness for both individuals and for people groups. You see, we fight for the truth to reign in the hearts and minds of our family. Our opportunity is to influence our families so that they think more like how God thinks. In fact, you might look at it this way. Our highest privilege in our family is the opportunity to influence them to become captivated by God according to his word. When I was growing up, my dad would impart as much wisdom as he could to me. And my dad to this day, and he's sitting right over there. Why don't you raise your hand, dad? (laughs) To this day, one of the wisest men I've ever known. And one of the things he would tell me is, as he was giving me instruction, he would say, you do understand that I'm aware that when you walk out that front door and go do whatever you do, wherever you do it, I can't be with you. But there's certain truths I want you to know so that as you're wherever you are, you're going to behave. You're going to remain safe. I'm grateful for that influence that he had. And friend, it gets better in Christ because when we can impart the God of truth, they not only go with the truth, but they go with the God of truth. The God of truth is with them to be their protector. You said Jesus described it to us in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, this way. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and most of you know the remainder of this verse, and the truth, the truth shall make you free. Freedom, liberated from this fortress. What does that mean for us? Christian, leader, you will only pilot your families as well as you yourself are piloted by Christ according to his truth. All the instrumentation and equipment in a plane's cockpit are of no positive benefit unless they are filled with exact and current data. And for us as Christians, that is found in God's precious and perfect word. I want us to now turn to Ephesians chapter 6, where we're going to consider some elements of this chapter in order to give us further instruction on how to employ God's word to secure our homes and our families. In Ephesians chapter 6, we pick up in verse 10, where Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
That word wiles is not a word we commonly use. However, most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with wily coyote, right? And what was wily coyote's forte? Cunning deceptiveness, trying to get that roadrunner to fall into his traps, right? And he would often employ trickery to do so. The enemy employs deceitful cunningness, trickery, to try to get us to be lured into sin. And we've got to be very humbly aware that he's been at this for a long time. So I've got to think about 6,000 years or so into this, after studying humans for all these years, combined with all the temptations that exist in our modern world, Never doubt that he has a plan of attack tailor-made for you. But we read on further. And I hearken back to the words of Jesus in John chapter 8 as he addressed the Pharisees, where we now pick up in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, where we're told by Paul, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, in the unseen world, in the demonic, those are the ones that peddle these lies and captivate people. And as we read further in verse 13 of Ephesians 6, We're told yet again, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to, what's the word? Stand. What's the next word? Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. You know that that's the posture that God gives the Christian in Scripture for fighting this battle? Holding your ground. Standing fast. When Satan or his minions or humans that peddle his lies knock on the cockpit door, we're to have Jesus answer the door. Never us. Never us. We're told that we're to have our waist girded with truth. You see, one of the beautiful parts of the imagery here is that it's the truth that holds everything else that was mentioned in its place. With the truth, you now have the proper information with which to actually be holy. With the truth, you have the truth of the gospel, not a distortion or a perversion of the gospel. With the truth, you now have the equipment with which to have accurate and effective faith. And with the truth, you put on the helmet of salvation, which is the security of your life in Christ, which holds you steadfast in the midst of adversity. And then we find ourselves going all the way down to verse 17 of Ephesians 6, that second part of the verse where we read that God has given us the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the word of God. This is the only part of our armor that's used for killing. And the intent is for it to slay falsehood and lies. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, as we're perhaps now beginning to descend in altitude on this connecting flight. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, picking up in verse 5, we read yet again that by the truth we cast down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Here we have again the richness of very descriptive language provided to us by the Holy Spirit through Paul as he penned this letter to the Corinthians. What I want to draw our attention to is the phrase casting down. What are we casting down? People? No. Arguments. And every high thing. You see, lies or falsehood, they like to exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, almost as if to bow up to the truth of God in an effort to try to humiliate God. But when the truth is unleashed, those lies are put on their faces, dethroned. Furthermore, I want to look at another word, and that's the word captivity. We bring every thought, the implication being a false thought, a lie, into captivity. The Greek word is aik malatizo. Literally, it refers to taking captive as with a spear. Think of warfare with the spear. Think of an enemy fleeing or perhaps trying to gain an advantage. And the one who's going to throw the spear has to, in the midst of pursuing that enemy, identify them in such a way that they could sling that spear and in doing so neutralize the enemy, perhaps pinning him to the wall, no longer free to bring destruction. A uh, modern-day equivalent perhaps would be you're at home and you see a bug crawling across the floor, right? And if you're like me, your first inclination is, I'm going to smash it before it escapes and hides. Very aggressively. That's what the truth does to lies. It's a way of saying men, women... Leaders of households, not in my house. Not in my house. For we know, again, as the mind goes, so goes the heart. And as the heart goes, so goes the body. Because, friend, the battle is in the hearts and minds of the people for the hearts and minds of the people. And so I want to close by imparting to you 
a strategy. And this strategy comes obviously from God's word. But I can also say that it comes from years of experience as both a married man and as a father. Years of experience of, yes, some success, but also some failure. None of us are perfect. My life is an illustration of that. In fact, tomorrow, September 12th, is mine and my wife's 20-year anniversary. My wife's sitting up here with my three daughters, the oldest of which will soon be 17. Three daughters, the oldest of which is 17. If that's not a prayer request, I don't know what is. And it's never been because of them. They're beautiful and godly, and I'm so proud of every one of them. But it's more prayer for the world that they live in, right? So here's the strategy. Disciple your wife and children, or women, perhaps even your spouse, your husband. Disciple your spouse and children as Jesus discipled the 12. And how did he do that? As he walked with them through life, every day, one day at a time, he applied God's truth to everything they came across. Now, what that necessitates is that we actually walk with them through life. Again, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 3. Paul says here, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, verse 3 is actually a play on words in the original language. Because in verse 2, he refers to some who think of us as though we walked according to the flesh. You see, there were those in Corinth who were bringing the accusation against Paul that he was walking and warring sinfully in the flesh, either by lust or by pride or by being overly aggressive in an unrighteously angry way. But Paul says, no, let me clear this up. Paul acknowledged that he was in the flesh. In other words, I'm not a phantom. I'm a real dude. I'm a man. I'm in the flesh. I'm living as a physical person in the real world. In other words, we could paraphrase it by Paul saying something like this. Hey, listen, I live in the real world. My head is neither in the clouds nor hidden in the sand. I am aware. I am awake. I know what time it is. I'm with it. I get it. Now, here's the good news. That's how we have to be with our families. And the good news is, we don't have to be perfect parents. We just have to be present parents. Pastor Skip referred to it this way. He says, there's a two-word solution. Parental involvement. And he goes on to further describe it as having both proximity and intimacy. You're aware of your family. You might look at it this way. We're to always maintain situational awareness with our family. Let me read something to you. Quote, psychologist Mika Ensley developed a model of situation awareness with three main aspects, perception, comprehension, and anticipation. In essence, she writes, 
Situation awareness is your mental picture of what's going on around you. It involves picking up information and cues from the environment, putting those pieces of information together so that you can develop a good idea of what's going on, and then using that information to predict what might happen next. What's an example of this? Okay, parent, let's say you walk into the living room and there's one or two of your children, and right when they see you, you all make eye contact, they startle, and they put their device down, face down. Situational awareness. Hmm, what's your first thought? I wonder what's on that screen. Hey, sweetheart, why don't you show me what you were doing? Never happened in our home, right? It's happened. Friend, we don't have to be perfect parents. We just have to be in the know. We have to be engaged. We have to have proximity and intimacy. Why? So that we know when and where to apply the truth. You see, the last part of our passage in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 6, we're told that we are to be ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, when, when we're obeying God, when we're doing what we should be doing, we're able to be a very sanitizing presence in any environment that we're in, especially our home. And the punishing of disobedience isn't in an ungodly, angry way, but it is in a way to be effective at dismissing or expelling falsehood from your home. So when falsehood or lies or sin is detected, you're active not passive. You do something about it. You bring God's truth into the situation. As a husband and a father, my family will tell you, I do this to the best of my ability, and I also take a lot of risks. And sometimes I've crossed the line. Might have overreacted to try to find out what's going on, but only to find that, oh, it was nothing. Okay, good, sorry. I'd rather err sometimes that way than to never succeed at being able to protect my wife and family. So in conclusion, I want us to consider this. Corrupt thinking is a greater threat to us and our families than an unlocked door or an open window in our home. If you can, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Here's the best scriptural illustration of the strategy of applying God's truth to everything that you and your family are coming across as you walk with them through life. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. You might even say your cockpit door. And on your gates. What does that mean? Friend, that simply means this. Mom, dad, sibling. Sometimes the children in the home are the most godly influence 
of a house, that means that when the subjects of homosexuality or same-sex marriage surface, either through a news article or through a family member, you talk about it according to Scripture. When images of pornography or seductive fashion enter into your family's consciousness, again, perhaps through a website or through someone that you see when you're out and about, you bring God's word to bear upon considering that subject. When the example of a sinful friend enters in, where this one person that you thought was so godly begins to use profanity and your children are wondering what's going on, you bring God's word into what might be going, into, going on in the heart of their friend. When temptations of alcohol or substance abuse enter a family, you bring God's word to bear upon that discussion. Or when the distractions of materialism enter a home, you bring God's word to bear upon a discussion of that subject. Friend, brother, sister in Christ, whether we like it or not, we're in a war, but we have the truth. And the truth is how we secure the cockpit of our life and the lives of our family. Let's pray. Father, we ask that all of us would have a zealous heart for the truth, that we would never make your truth complicated, but that we would allow the purity, the simplicity, and the power of your truth to be that which strengthens us, that which fortifies us, that which is our defense. Lord, together with my brothers and sisters, we ask that you would further intensify, turn the burner of our hearts up when it comes to love for your word. We pray, God, for a renewed reliance upon your word. We thank you so much for it. We praise you, God, in the name of our great provider, our great redeemer, and our constant rescuer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 feet.